All right, well, last week we looked at the beginning of James chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. And we learned together there's no room for partiality in the kingdom of God. No playing favorites in the house of the Lord. Don't do it. Christianity and partiality are incompatible with each other, okay? That's what we learned last week. And I want to take just a quick minute to just maybe issue an apology, okay? And issue an apology. And reflecting on last week's message, one of the thoughts I had is, I think I missed an opportunity, and I'm sorry for it. I think I missed an opportunity to say, well done, Parkview East. I think James 2, 1 through 13 is a passage of scripture that Parkview East in many ways embodies. And I wanna encourage you Well done, I love this about East. So welcoming, non-partial, whether it's about race, age, social status, on and on we could go. Certainly there's room in our lives and our church to grow in this area, but I think, by God's grace, this is one area that Parkview East does really well in. So, I missed a chance to say good job. I'm taking advantage of this morning to say good job. Keep it up, all right? Go for it. Now, don't get carried away. Like I said, we got room to grow, all right? Get too full of yourselves. Jeez, no, I'm kidding. So while I think God is calling us, I believe God's calling us to be a James chapter 2, 1 through 13 type of church, I also believe God is calling us, he wants us to be a James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 church. So this morning, we're going to continue reading in chapter 2 of James. Starting in verse 14, I'm going to read through 26. And then we'll just dive right in, okay? This is what God's word says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you wanna be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. What we see initially as we look at this passage, what James is saying at the very beginning is that there's sort of two different kinds of faith. You see it right there in verse 14. James tells us there's different types of faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? Can that type of faith save him? 
As you read throughout the passage, you see that, that James has sort of two different kinds of faith in sight. The phrase he uses several times is, well, essentially, dead faith. It's the first kind of faith. It's a counterfeit faith. It's not the real deal. It's an imposter. It's misleading. In verse 26, he calls it a dead faith. That's one kind of faith. But there's another kind of faith. It's, as you can imagine, the opposite of a dead faith. It's a living faith. This is the real faith. It's the real deal. It's an active faith. It's sincere. It's authentic. It's genuine. And this faith, he says, is a saving faith. So what James is trying to do is help us to see the distinction. What's the difference between a dead faith and a living faith? And as you can imagine, he's trying to nudge us in one direction to embrace a living faith. Now, just in case you think I'm full of it, Jesus, listen how Jesus puts it in Mark chapter 2. There's a different kind of faith. There's a living faith, and this kind of faith you can see. You can see the difference. Jesus himself says so. In Mark chapter 2, if you're familiar with this, one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is teaching as he does, and he's drawing a crowd as he did. And there was a group of individuals, a group of friends who had another friend who was unable to get to Jesus. This individual couldn't walk, and they understood that the only hope that their friend had was if they could get to Jesus to be healed. And so as they couldn't find their way into the house, the doorways were blocked, and and people were all around Jesus, they couldn't get to Jesus. These individuals, out of sort of desperation, they began to climb on the roof. And once they got on top of the roof, you familiar with the story? They began to pull the roof apart creating a hole in the roof. And then they proceeded to lower their friend down into the very presence of Jesus. And then Mark tells us, when Jesus saw their faith. See, their actions revealed their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, that's when his sins were forgiven. That's when this individual was healed. Their faith produced action. You could see it. It had a particular look about it. Growing up, there was friends of mine that would go on vacation. I think when I was in elementary school is when, I don't know, Oakley's became very popular, okay? Maybe they were popular before that and I just became aware of them. I have no idea. But I would often have friends that would go on vacation and they would come back. We didn't travel very much as a kid. And they would come back and they would have Oakley's. But these were not real Oakley sunglasses. These were fake Oakley sunglasses. They were called Jokely's. That's what we called them, Jokely's. And, and you could tell the difference after just a matter of time. The paint would begin to fade away. The logo would begin to not be visible anymore. After just a little bit of time, you could see whether those glasses were Oakley's or Jokely's. You could tell. It just had a way of sort of revealing itself. 
Faith does the same thing. James wants us to see this morning in this text that real faith in our hearts is seen, is visibly seen by real fruit in our lives. It's a big idea. It's a big idea of this text. Real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that's in our hearts, that exists in our hearts, it can't just stay inside of us. If it's real, authentic, genuine faith, it has a way of working itself out into our lives. That's what it does. That's how you can know it's real. So this morning, I have sort of just two quick things I wanna do. The first one is, I think as we read this text, to many of us, maybe if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you've been around church a while, there, there is a good chance that some of the words, the verses in this section of scripture strike you as odd. They may even seem to contradict other verses that exist in the Bible. So the first thing I wanna do is I wanna simply ask their question. Is there a gospel problem in James chapter two? Point number one, gospel problem, question mark. Let's just look and explore that because I really think this is the elephant in the room where this text is concerned. In James chapter two, verses 24, it kind of sums up his big idea there. He says that you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. When we read that verse, for some of us, it may sound weird or unusual. If we're a, a gospel people, that can sound strange. That a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, that's in the Bible. Specifically, it's in James chapter two. For a people who've been transformed by and in love with the good news of Jesus Christ, the free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the newness of life that comes to us by grace through faith, what in the world is James saying? If that's our understanding of the gospel, that we are saved, we are saved not because of our works, but because of his works. How many times have we said that on a Sunday morning? It's the reason we gather together. This sounds like it's inconsistent with the gospel. Is this the same gospel of Jesus that we read about in the other New Testament books? In Romans chapter three, for we, are, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter 328, Romans four, five, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians two sixteen. yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Are all of those verses suggesting that James chapter two is wrong? For some folks, they may say, oh, there you have it. The Bible, it's full of inconsistencies. One inconsistent truth after another. One inconsistent teaching after another. It doesn't match up. It doesn't line up. Paul says faith alone. James says it's works. Skeptics win. Let's wrap it up and get out of here. Is that what we do? No, not so fast. Clearly, that's not what is happening here in this text. What is happening here? See, here's the deal. 
rather than these things being contradicting views of the role of faith in the life of a believer, they are rather they're teaching us different aspects of the same faith. They are two sides of the same coin. I think to help us understand this, first you have to understand what is justification. Let's sort of define the terms. What does it mean to be justified? Essentially, sinners made right in the sight of God. Sinners made right in the sight of a holy and righteous God. It's the judicial verdict prior to the day of judgment pronouncing that guilty sinners are forgiven, declaring them morally righteous before a holy God. And justification sort of works in two different parts. It involves both the forgiveness of sins for us sinners. It forgives us our sins, no longer reckoning, being reckoned to the believer's account. And secondly, it also takes righteousness and credits that into our account. So it forgives us of our sins, being justified, being made right in God. We have the forgiveness of sins, but more than that, it doesn't just leave us in sort of a morally neutral state. It takes all of Christ's righteousness, all of his perfection, and it puts it into our account. That's what it means to be justified. Justification is about a righteous status that results from the righteous character of Christ being credited to believers. We are therefore made right in God's sight. Now, this is the same word that's used by Paul and by James, both using the exact same word. Now, it's important to understand sort of the focus, two different biblical authors, one Bible spoken by God, given to us, his people, by God, the same God, two different men he's using to write this. Paul's focus when using this phrase is to show how faith in Jesus alone is what declares a person right before God. I'll say it again. When Paul writes to the book, in the book of Romans to the church at Rome, when he writes to them, his use of this phrase shows us what it means to be declared right in God's sight. Remember the context, Paul wrote to churches where people were tempted to trust in their works for salvation. He was writing to a people who said, faith plus circumcision is what's required for salvation. And Paul says, no, that is not how the gospel works. It's not faith plus circumcision, nor is it faith plus following these food laws, putting those things together. That's not what produces Salvation. It's not faith plus planting a church or two or, or faith plus being a missionary or, or faith plus giving so much or faith plus doing so much or not doing stuff. It's not faith plus, as my grandmother used to say, don't drink, smoke, or chew or date girls who do. It's not faith plus that that gets you saved. That's, that's Paul's argument because he had people who were adding to the gospel. Don't do that. When you add to the gospel, you subtract from the power of the cross. That was Paul's focus. James has a different problem he's addressing in the church. So therefore, his, what he's arguing with them, showing them, is going to be different. He has a different audience. He wants to show that faith is demonstrated, true faith is demonstrated through the life of a believer. That you can know that real faith exists, that it's more than just an intellectual assent, but that it's visible 
in somebody's life. It actually changes how you live. And this is what James's audience was having a hard time understanding. We saw this last week as they were struggling to show, play favorites, right? They, they were not understanding how the, the gospel moves into your life and it transforms your life. It changes how you interact with people, how you give your money, what you do with your time. It actually changes the way you live. And then if it doesn't, was it real in the first place? While faith is all that is required to declare one righteous, it is a particular kind, this is James' point, of faith, namely one that produces acts of righteousness that can be seen in one's life. While real faith is what's needed to declare, Paul, one right before God, this real faith then is also displayed, James, throughout the life of a believer. And if it's not, then you need to examine, is your faith legit? Is it the real deal? And this is what James is asking of his audience, and I think it's what he's asking of us this morning as well. See, this is actually God's grace coming to us in James chapter two, verses 14 to 26. It's an opportunity for us as his people to ask ourselves this question, is my faith legit? Is it sincere? Is it real? Calvin says this about sort of this, you know, seeming tension. It's not a tension, but he says this. Why then are we justified by faith? Because by faith we apprehend the righteousness of Christ, which alone reconciles us to God. We are declared by faith right before God. This faith, however, you cannot apprehend without at the same time apprehending sanctification. Christ therefore justifies no man without also sanctifying him. And that sanctifying part this is what James is talking about here. So you see, it's not a problem. In fact, the teaching of Paul and James are, are complementary. They're not contradictory. We need to hold them both together. This is the kind of people that God has called us to be. Those who are not just declared right, but take their, that declaration and put it on display, demonstrating to the world around them their faith. People who savor and cherish the grace of God available to us by the work of Christ, who place our trust in him and in him alone for salvation, and people who understand that that kind of faith changes a person. It, it brings the human heart to, to a place where it can't stay the same. It, it works its way out in their life, displaying the very love of God that we treasure. So you see, there are two kinds of faith. There's a dead faith. It's a fake. It's a phony. It's lip service. And, and James says, reject that kind of faith. And there's a living faith. It's real. It's visible. And let me just tell you this this morning. What the world does not need any more of today is fake, phony, imposter Christians. The world does not need more of those. What the world needs desperately today are men and women, boys and girls, 
whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of God. Real Christians who aren't afraid to let their faith be seen. That's what the world needs. That's the type of church we need to be. You know, there's a reason why the school that exists in this building is called Faith Academy. There's a reason. It's not just a good Christian word. Because it's forming the faith, simultaneously forming the faith of young people while it's also demonstrating to the world around us the faith of the church of Jesus Christ. This is what that kind of faith looks like. You wanna see? Here it is. So it can't be dismissed. Can't be brushed away. Faith is evident in the way that you talk. It's evident in the way that you treat people. It's evident in the way that you lead. It's evident in the way that you love. On and on we go the way you spend your time, spend your money. You should be able to see. And essentially what James is trying to say is, listen, what we don't need any more of is any slick sort of statements that say, here is what I believe. What we want are lives that say enough for themselves. Okay? So, as it goes on in the passage, point number two, there's only two points. So you can, there's actually four subpoints under that second point, though, so don't get too excited. Just, he gives us sort of four examples, four proofs of what a living faith, how do you tell if something's alive? Recently, there was a friend of mine who was in the neighborhood, sort of late at night. He said, hey, I'm close by, stop by. So he stopped by, he sat on the front porch. And after about an hour of sitting there, he got a text from his wife, and the text said something, just basically said, proof of life. You know, I want to know that you're alive. He didn't communicate that he was at my house. She's like, give me a sign that you're living in this world right now, okay? Took a picture, I'm alive, it's all good, right? What James gives us in the following is four proofs of life. How do you know that your faith is living? Proof number one, verses 15 and 17, gives us sort of a hypothetical example. It hits close to home maybe for some of us here and now, a brother and sister who's poorly clothed without food for the day. You come across a person like this and the response is, it says right here in the text, say, if a brother or sister lacking clothes, one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. If your response essentially is only a response of words, no action, and not only is it just about words, but those words are actually kind of ridiculous. They're, they're slightly offensive. They're not words of a blessing, but rather they're, they're words of dismissal. You got this. You'll be fine. <laughs> Don't get in my way, basically. James asks, what good is that? Does that little phony word of blessing make a difference for that person? Can they actually go and fill themselves and warm themselves? Is it making any kind of difference? He asks the question twice. What good is that? Words say one thing. Actions or inaction, in this case, says an entirely different thing. Those words mean nothing. This is not the look of a transformed life, life that's been gripped by the gospel of grace. A person who understands that apart from Christ, they themselves are poor, but God, through Christ, has blessed them with his unsearchable riches Someone who's been blessed like that should be moved to respond in love, in grace, in compassion towards those in need. Faith that is numb towards the needs of others around you is, James saying, a false faith. It's not a living faith. A living faith looks like love. 
It's outward facing. Your needs and concerns become my needs and concerns. I'm moved in compassion by your pain and grief. We see somebody in that situation and not just say, have a great day. The Lord bless you. I'll pray for you. It actually changes how we spend our time. It changes the next move that we make in our day. So he's saying, what's the proof of life? Do you love those around you? Proof number one. Proof number two, we see it in verses 18 and 19. This is the evidence, the proof is it's more than just, the best way I can sort of summarize this, how do you know if your faith is living? If it's more than just affirming truth. Look at verse 19. It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The truth, this truth, which is absolutely foundational to everything the Old Testament Jews knew about God, is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the cornerstone of biblical understanding of God. They would have recited this daily, affirming this belief over and over and over again. It's a belief that's affirmed by the Christian church from day one. We believe in one God. In this church service today, we will end our church service with a, with a doxology affirming the oneness of God, the triune God, one God, and a benediction. Both of those things, if you listen to it over and over again, it does that. It affirms the triune God. He's one. So important to affirm this glorious truth. But while it's important and essential, affirmation of this truth, the most foundational truth, is not enough. That's what he's saying. Affirming it is good and right. Do it, but it's not enough. Demons, is the example he gives, themselves affirm this truth. If there's anybody who knows this to be true, it's Satan himself. Demons believe in the existence of God. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in the reality of heaven and hell. And if you were ever to think that being a Christian is only about having the right theology, just consider the demons. We must remember that we share a lot of beliefs with the demonic realm. They believe it too. He goes on to say not only do they believe, but they shudder. Not only do they know the truth about who God is, they are affected by the truth, and that, that effect is they shudder. You can see the results of their belief by looking at their life, their action, their response, they shudder. So you see, genuine, sincere faith is more than just an intellectual assent, thinking rightly. We must think rightly. Don't hear me say we don't have to put effort and energy into that, we must. But it's more than that, that's not enough. Someone saying they believe something gives no indication of whether they really do. It's in their actions that you really see what their faith is made of, where their faith lies. You can grow up in a Christian school. You can grow up in a Christian home. You can go to Sunday school. You can go to Awana, VBS, have Bible verses imprinted in your mind. You can know that there is God and say, yes, I checked that box. But have zero evidence in your life that that actually makes a difference. God would say, well, do you really believe me then? Faith, important, essential. Sorry, knowledge, important, essential, not enough. Proof number three, we see it in verses 21 and 24. Verse 21, James point out the great patriarch 
of the faith, Abraham himself. Remember, you go back into Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham is first called by God. He's promised by him to be the father of a great nation. All the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, the problem at this time is Abraham's thinking, I'm old, I got an old wife, she's barren, no kids, major challenge, hard to believe. But then in Genesis 15, the promise comes again. It's restated to Abraham. And Abraham, we're told, believed the promise that God gave him. Even though it didn't make sense, he believed it, and it was counted to him as righteousness. James goes on and draws our attention to what happens then in Genesis 22. You guys remember the scene, if you're familiar with the Bible, where Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his one son, his son that the blessing was supposed to come through. This is the promised son and the, the one through whom God would fulfill his promise to bless the nations. Seemed to go against everything that God had been telling him to this point. Yet there on the mountain, Abraham is preparing to offer up Isaac to sacrifice, to believe, to, to trust God, to do what God said. Didn't make any sense, but there he was. The obedience demonstrated of Abraham, demonstrated the sincerity of his faith. Proof number three, what does, what does it, living faith look like? It looks like taking God at his word. Even when it's hard to see how it makes sense. How does this line up? This goes against what I want. Trusting God always leads in obedience to God. And Abraham shows us that right there. Proof number four, verse 25. He goes from a patriarch to a prostitute. Completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Another Old Testament figure couldn't be more different from Abraham. Abraham, Jewish man, Rahab was a Gentile woman. Abraham was rich, Rahab was poor. Abraham was a patriarch, Rahab was a prostitute. Totally ends of the spectrum. But as different as they are, they both illustrate the same point. Faith is seen by action. This kind of faith comes, James is showing us, in all shapes and in all sizes. You read about Abraham in the book of Joshua. Following Moses' death, God's people are finally positioned to take over the promised land. In order to do so, they have to take the city of Jericho. Spies, if you remember, are sent in to sort of, before the conquest, look around and, and, and see sort of what they're up against. And while these spies are in Jericho, sort of casing the joint, they meet Rahab. Meanwhile, word has gotten out that the spies are in the land and the local police, they come knocking on Rahab's door, looking for the men. And rather than turning them in over to the police and playing it safe, Rahab sends the police in the wrong direction, hides the men, helps them escape back to their people. Before she does, before they go, she tells the spies that she has heard of these people. Not only them, but she's heard of their God and all that he has done in fulfilling his promises to his people, his faithfulness. And it's her belief in this God, James is telling us, that causes her to act in a particular way. It's a way that doesn't have her interest in mind but theirs first. It's a way that is, for Rahab, ridiculously crazy. It is risky. She's putting her life on the line. It's at stake to protect these individuals. 
the faith in Rahab when it worked its way out into her life looked like taking one crazy risk for God. And the truth is, for us today, it will look precisely the same. Think about all the opportunities you have this week to risk something for the name of Jesus. Or maybe last week, I guarantee there will be no shortage of opportunities this week to take a risk. Maybe it means speaking to somebody about Jesus that you haven't spoken about before. Maybe it means risking a relationship. Oh, what if I bring this up? What's it gonna do? Maybe it means risking a position at work because because there's a different option that requires more faithfulness to God to do the right thing. Over and over and over again, God is calling us, his people, to take one risk after another to proclaim his goodness to the world around us. Now, if you just think of these two individuals, Abraham and Rahab, such awesome displays of trust and risk. The author of Hebrews holds them both up as well as great models of the faith. Where does it come from? It's something that we need to know. If we wanna be like them, if we wanna imitate them, where does their their ability to take one step of trust and risk after another. Abraham, as he picked up in that scene, picked up the knife, ready to slaughter his son. Remember how the story goes, an angel of the Lord stopped him and calls out, don't lay a hand on your boy. This is important. He says, for I know that you fear God. See, in that act, what Abraham was doing was he was, His heart was being laid bare. And you can see in that moment, what is the one thing that Abraham treasures and prizes above all else? It's God himself. Abraham had seen God's faithfulness. He knew he could trust him and he treasured him above all else. And Rahab, consider her. She was probably lost her confidence in all of the local false gods around her failed to protect her city. She knew where her allegiance would lead her, what allegiance to them would lead her. She wasn't convinced. Been there, done that. But she hears about another, one who does keep his words, one who is trustworthy, one who is faithful. And she believes him to be Lord of all, changes her allegiance from the false gods to the one true God. Because she believes, she acts. See, for both of these individuals, their treasuring and prizing of God above everything else produced in their life a particular kind of action that you could see. And so the question for us this morning, really, it's, it's, it's two questions. One, does our faith look like that? If our hearts were opened this morning and laid bare, what would, what would be exposed What would you see? Parkview, we have good reason to treasure this same God this morning, just like Abraham and Rahab did. This God made a way for us, sinners like you and me, to be made right before him. And it's not because of our work It's because of the finished work of Jesus. The one who saw us in our sin and shame. Undeserving as we are, yet he gave himself up for us. Living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. That's what Jesus did for us. That, Jesus, should be treasured 
above all else. And when he is, when he's first in your life, when he grips your life, it will look different. It will look like loving others. Maybe you wouldn't have loved before. It will look like more than just an intellectual ascension, filling our heads with facts. It'll look like one step of trust and risk after another. That's what it looks like. Living faith has a particular look about it. It's true. You can see it.